1: Hey, everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the You Don't Have to Go Home, But You Can't Stay on My Couch Unless You're Verified edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. On the show today, Shannon and I talked to Lee Gallagher, author of The Airbnb Story, a new history of the paradigmatic company that has changed the hospitality industry forever. We'll talk to Lee about the founders, the controversies that the company has generated, and how it dealt with them, and what's next. The book is out next Tuesday. Shannon, you're an Airbnb user, are you not?
2: I have stayed in a few Airbnbs in my time. What about you?
1: Uh, I did, but I'm curious to know what your very favorite experience on Airbnb was. We The single best one. Wait, does
2: it have to be on Airbnb? Specifically Airbnb?
1: Specifically you used Mm. Airbnb and not one of these rip-off websites. Okay,
2: well, so this is like... I'm sad, but my husband and I last year wanted to do a baby moon where we were going to go away before we had our baby and our lives had no more free time but you may remember zika so we couldn't go somewhere like warm and wonderful so we went away for the weekend from new york city to greenwich connecticut which i recognize is not (laughs) exactly like the most
1: for our overseas listeners greenwich (laughs) is about a 40 minute train ride from new york yeah
2: it's pretty close but we went and we stayed just outside of greenwich it was like a little farm and she had a guest house and it was very relaxed and lovely and there were some very nice cats so that was positive
1: very nice what about you very nice i would say paris I once went to London for a company thing, and then I went to Paris for 10 days afterwards, and I can tell you as a sign of just how much uh, Airbnb has changed things, I would not have been able to stay in Paris for 10 days at the time um, because a comparable hotel room, a hotel room that would have been – that would have offered amenities like the ones I got at the place I stayed – would have been astronomically expensive. This was before the euro started crashing, yeah. so my timing was terrible also. <laughs> right? But I stayed in Paris for 10 days at an awesome place right by the Rue Oberkampf, super hip, right around the corner from like a grocery store where they sold fresh bread and cheese and all that stuff. Felt like I was in the nineteen twenties and one of these people who was hanging out with Gertrude Stein and Hemingway and all these guys. It was awesome. awesome. Uh, okay. Now that we're done with
2: our ad for Airbnb. I know,
1: right? <laughs> no, listen, we are gonna talk about the bad stuff that has also surrounded the company, um, because Lee dedicates part of her book to that. Lee. How are you?
3: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, you guys.
1: It's super fun. I could listen to you guys banter all over (laughs) the whole show. It's great. Right. So I get the sense sometimes that uh, people think that the guest isn't actually here while Shannon and I are like doing our thing. But actually, no. Lee was just sitting here looking at a slack jaw like, what are you idiots doing? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Okay. uh, So we've got a little bit of a roadmap um, for this conversation. Rather than talking about like the founding of the company itself, which is a story that a lot of people know, it's not entirely accurate, the sort of mythical way it was founded, but I'll let people figure that out by buying your book. Instead, I want to talk about, (laughs) you got to leave a little something on the table, right? Um, I want to talk about the personalities of the founders themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of brilliant technical innovation that went into this company, but actually the main thing that separated them from everybody else was their sense of design.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, much has been made. There's been great fanfare about the fact that two of the three co-founders, Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia, came out of RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. They were designers. It's true. Design played a huge role in their in the company's success. But it's not just, you know, when I first heard that years ago, I just thought, oh, because, yeah, the site looks good. It looks nice. But it's not just about the look. It's sort of, you know, and they talk a lot about this. Design is is about everything about a product. It's how you interact with it. You know, they even took it to design their culture, how they run their board meetings, things like that. But when you look at the product itself, because there were many, many sites that did this before Airbnb, and I think that's a really important distinction to make. There was Home Away, there was VRBO, even Craigslist did this. So what led them to, like, crack open this market for just millions of people to use it? And it was really the first time that they sort of made this site that that made a thing out of people's personalities, which later kind of came back to bite them a little bit with discrimination, which we can talk about. They really made these images of these properties really come to life by sending professional photographers to each one. So they were kind of these magazine worthy photos. And, you know, somebody said it's like Pinterest meets real estate porn. (laughs) But then the other thing was that you could do everything all on one site. And at the time, you couldn't really, you know, on the other side, you couldn't click one button and pay and do everything all in the same site. And at the time, building that payment function into the site was very tricky and very and something that the CTO, Nathan Blacharzik did have to spend a lot of time doing and was complicated. So there is a, a deep technical backbone to Airbnb, but the design is definitely a huge part of what made it so different.
1: Uh, you mentioned Nathan Blacharzik. I wasn't exactly sure how to pronounce that, <laughs> um, so thank you for that. He's one of the three co-founders. Uh, Can you just give us a sense of uh, the distinctive personalities of each of the three co-founders, how they complement each other, and where they differ?
3: Yeah, they're, they're very different. And it's funny, in the book, I talk about a personality test that they once took. Over the years, they got a lot of professional coaching because they were so new to management. And that was a big part of how they kind of evolved as leaders. But at one point, they took this personality test where it was like the coach plotted their three personalities on a circle. And they were like, equidistant they were they were like a perfectly equidistant you know if you connected the dots it would be a perfect isosceles triangle of these three dots and the, the coach had said we would never seen this before they really are different i mean Nate he's like a genius coder he made almost a million dollars in high school by building and selling marketing software he paid for his harvard degree that way brian chesky has said of him that it was like having three engineers uh, at the time instead of one and he was a huge hugely responsible for their success He's a very even keel guy, very unflappable, super smart, super articulate, actually taking on more of a strategic role now. He's a rare CTO who actually almost went to business school and took the GMATs and always had a kind of strategic outlook as well. And so now his role, he's not really CTO anymore. He has a much more uh, strategic role. So that's Nate. Brian Chesky, the CEO, is a uh, really interesting personality. He's the only one of the three that had no experience in business and technology, entrepreneurism, and he's running the company. So his path and his evolution as a leader has been really interesting. He's very engaging, very charming, very intense and passionate. And people that know him say that about him a lot, that he's He's deeply focused, he's incredibly curious. He obsessively asks questions and is constantly trying to improve. He did a Q and A on stage with Reed Hoffman, one of their investors uh, at Greylock and f- co-founder of LinkedIn. And they got off stage. It was like a 45-minute Q&A. And Brian turned to him like they hadn't even descended the steps the full way. And he said, what I what I do wrong? How could I do better? And Reed Ree just said it was literally the first thing he said. So he's really obsessed with this business and obsessed with their mission. He talks about it all the time. So so that's Brian. And then Joe Gebbia is the third. And Joe and Brian went to RISD together. And Joe is a, is a designer's designer. He really is incredibly focused on design and art and ideas he's really focused on you know thinking of super crazy out-of-the-box ideas and has actually set up a design lab within the company to really focus on on doing that much more intensely right now so they're 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 really different in almost every way personality expertise everything and somehow it all balances out yeah i mean you know you don't really see companies with three founders ever let alone three founders that stay together this long i couldn't I don't have another example i i looked i researched i mean they're just for, for this long
2: yeah it's kind of um, crazy they haven't had a falling out they haven't had a situation where like they brought in somebody with more experience mm-hmm. to for what, what do they call it? Adult, adult supervision <laughs> i mean yeah you've seen a lot we've seen a lot of other tech companies have these problems so one of the things that really struck me reading the book was sort of when you go through different points where you kind of describe the company in different ways and this may sound like a really basic question but like what is airbnb I mean, is it an accommodation platform is it a technology company is it a payments processor i mean you sort of you describe it in all these different ways in the book and i'm curious sort of what what how you see it overall and how we define it what that means for sort of how we understand what it is they're trying to do
3: Sure. I think that's a great question. There's many answers to that question. I mean, I can tell you the way I see it, the way they see it, and maybe the way their enemies see it <laughs> is a better way to all that. distinct. But I mean, the way I see it, it, I mean, technically, it's an online accommodations platform, right? It's a way for you to go onto this platform. It's a marketplace and search for and book a place to stay that is in someone's home anywhere around the world. And it's you know that, that's the basic you know, business. Right. It's a platform. So it's not a lodging company. It is a website and it, it is a tech company. I mean some people say, you know, it's it's rooms and product. its product is in the real life. It's not a tech company. Well, it is. And its te- its tech backend is a huge part of the company's focus. Its engineering department is more than 400, 500 people. Um, so, so that's sort of at the basic what it is. Uh, they would say it's a place where, we bring people together to belong. They're obsessed with this mission of belonging and that it's a place where anyone can feel like they belong anywhere. They also are very clear about saying that they are a platform. This is a very critical distinction when it comes to legal liability mm-hmm. and when it comes to other things. So you know, we're not responsible. We're just a platform. It's
1: a platform versus a provider.
3: Yes. Right. Yes and that's a very important distinction, and then you know its enemies think of it as a ruthless rule breaker who has tons of money and just has no concern for local uh, citizens and housing dynamics and rules and and just has uh, come in like a bull in, in a china shop the, the The people that don't like Airbnb just like it very, very, very much, so it's really interesting to hear people who use it and like it you know have have all these favorable things to say about it and then you talk to the people that are on the other side and it is it is vicious so it's a fascinating dynamic
1: yeah one one more thing about the founders in the early years to give you a sense of the scale of the company now right 140 million people use it as guests about 3 million listings for places to stay and a 25 billion dollar valuation this company is also less than a decade old right and you do a really nice job in the book of placing the company's growth into a specific technological and cultural context. And in particular, the company could not have done what it did in the era before cloud computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give us a sense of like what these guys learned and how they were able to use that to grow so quickly. Yeah,
3: that was one of the most um, interesting things. There's so many things that w- if this hadn't existed or if this hadn't happened, this company would not be here today. And just to clarify, those 140 million, which is now close to 160 million, that's how fast it's growing. When I wrote, finished the book a few months ago, that's what it was, and now it's 20 more million people. Actually, to clarify, it's also not people, it's trips taken. It's an odd okay. metric they use, it's it's technically guess. Arrivals, which is sort of like tourism standards, talk about arrivals, but so it's the number of trips, and it's 160 million cumulative. Anyway, the cloud, you know, they at the time 2008, Blacharzik was hard at work, kind of trying to make all this put all this together, one of the the recurring themes was that Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia had these crazy, wacky ideas. They had crazy ideas. I mean, their first thing they did together at RISD was to design new products for the company Conair, and they came up with, like, a soap shirt that washed off. So they love, (laughs) like, out-of-the-box, just totally crazy. And they also were very obsessive about making the site really easy to use and, and, and adhering to all the specifications that they wanted. And so Nate was constantly rolling his eyes and trying to make all these ideas happen, which many of which were not just not possible. So one of the things that was brand new at the time was Amazon Web Services, which now is the enormous giant that powers so much of, of uh, conventional retail and web technology and also is huge, hugely important for Amazon, as we know. But it was brand new at the time. And so you know a lot of the stuff wasn't you know, in the coding world, there's whatever the term, terms are. There's standards for things. You know, people can communicate on what works and what doesn't. I mean, it was a sort of uncharted territory. But it allowed them to do all this stuff. You're basically renting all your all your servers, all your all back end. You know, Facebook, a few years earlier, wasn't able to do that. It meant that they didn't have to – Airbnb did not have to invest in servers, server warehouses – all that stuff, and that was transformative. Or hire their own
1: people to do, mm-hmm. yeah. which is an enormous uh, expense in both cost and uh, and time.
3: So that's a huge point of differentiation, not just for Airbnb, but for all those startups that came basically after that era. So it was it was like night and day.
1: In between those early years and the enormous scale that's still growing uh, that we have now, uh, Chesky said that actually some of the hardest years were in between. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words not those early years when they were being innovative and everything was crazy, yes, and they were working hard and it was fun, but the actual implementation of a plan. And there were so many problems in between those early years and where we are now. I thought we'd maybe systematically go through some of these uh, challenges. Um, Let's start with uh, safety. (laughs) Safety.
3: Safety. Safety is a huge thing. And it's funny, yeah, because like at one point they thought they would never get this company off the ground. And as soon as they did, they were encountered, they were hit with all these other things, all these other much bigger problems. And so safety has been something that has been a an issue. It's, it's always going to be an issue because of the nature of this company. It is never going to have a zero percent incident record. It's just not possible. I have a quote from Chesky in the book. He says, our product is real life. They had a huge awakening in 2011 when they had a horribly violent ransacking happen on their platform, and they completely bungled the response. So both of those things were terrible, and it was just sort of, when the incident happened, it confirmed everybody's worst fear about this company. It was one of the big reasons why no investor would touch it when they were just starting to get it off the ground. Nobody, everybody thought, you're going to have blood on your hands, something's right. going to well, happen. Chris <laughs> said that, right? He did, <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, there's no way I would yeah. touch this. So he yeah he said it on a on a Tim Ferriss podcast that I quoted in the book and and he says he lost hundreds of millions of dollars because of it. <laughs> care, Chris but.
1: Saka, an investor <laughs> who was offered a chance to invest in Airbnb, yes passed it up and would have made billions on it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Many people passed for that specific reason. It was the number one reason people did pass. Because at the time, the idea was still that the host, the person who owned the space or lived in the space, would still be present. It wasn't, you know, running the whole place.
2: Right. I mean, it's a liability nightmare. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, it is. And it still is. So they, after that incident, they, they came out, they corrected their initial response, and then they, they instituted all these, all these measures. They have a huge trust and safety department. They have an advisory board with huge security names on it. They have, you know, a a laundry list of things that are put in place to both on the preventative side to sort of screen people or to try to identify, you know, when someone might be somebody who's actually planning a huge party but saying they're not. And then on the reactive side when you're having an incident and you need to reach somebody. Now, these things don't always work the way they should. And you don't have to ask that many people to find a story of someone who not had a terrible incident, but had something go wrong. And so that's been a constantly evolving issue for them. They, they do have all these things in place, but it's just not, it's not going to prevent everything. And in fact, oftentimes it takes a media calling attention, somebody in the media calling attention to something that happened for, for them to get a response because the phone lines, it's it's not easy to get through all the time because the phone number isn't always listed on the website. And that's because they can't always You know, guarantee that someone will answer it immediately. And so you can't really have that. As a as a fail safe for a consumer if it's not going to be answered immediately. So
2: I mean, one of the issues here is that like I, I think it's so easy for us to think about these companies, these big tech companies, as being like, well, you know, it's all everything is so efficient, and so it means you don't need to have as many people. But actually, a lot of this is just an issue of like resources, like human resources, right? Like it actually is still very like a human centric, like requires people to respond and make hard judgment calls that you can't sort of just you know put off into some automated computer program. Right?
3: No, you can't. And- And they have 250 people in their trust and safety department, and they're all over the world, and they have this whole, they call it a follow-the-sun model, where it starts in Singapore and then hits the U.S. and then ends in Ireland, and they have people who are ready to handle things 24 hours a day. But you still have things slip through the cracks. I mean, I have a story in the book about a woman who rented out her suburban home in a wealthy suburb in New Jersey to somebody who said he was having uh, a party for golfers, a luncheon for golfers. It was around a big golf event coming to town. And she thought, when else is somebody going to want to rent my suburban home? Might as well take advantage of this. And it wasn't that. It was somebody who hosted a party for 400 kids and it was with cabanas and DJs and tickets were sold on Eventbrite it was just you know totally totally misrepresentation nobody got hurt the property damage was minimal uh, but she felt incredibly violated and embarrassed for her neighbors and all this stuff and it took her a week to hear back from Airbnb I mean it was just their response was was not good and even after that the, the the circular back and forth was just kind of you know, I could see it was very frustrating for her.
1: Without excusing uh, the truly abysmal response by Airbnb, and I should note that I myself felt my blood rising as I as I read about <laughs> what this lady went through and trying like to get a response worst from, from them. Terrible. Ever. Without excusing that, I guess it's also important though to make sure that we're comparing it to the other alternatives, right? Bad things do happen at hotels and Absolutely. motels and hostels. So Absolutely. it's you're never going to get a 100% safety record. It seems like they're a little bit more attuned to this now, though, than they were in the early years when they weren't really paying attention to this They are,
3: all. but that story happened last summer. And, oh. yeah, you know, this is this stuff is still happening. Mm-hmm. So you're right, though. I mean, I talked to the editor of Skift, which is a travel industry platform, news platform, and he said they don't, as a rule, write about things that go wrong in Airbnb like this because he sees the wires... News stories coming in about everything that happens at Econo Lodge and everywhere else, and he he you know he's witnessing everything, so he he feels like it's it's unfair. Not that he hasn't been critical about Airbnb in other ways, but to that point, so and they would say this woman accepted a guest who was said he was going to have some sort of gathering. You know, Somebody who read that said to me, they, as they were reading, they said, oh, Airbnb, really? And then they said, oh, this woman, really? Like, <laughs> everybody was kind of at fault there.
1: Right. You alluded to it earlier, but let's now talk about the kind of battle between Airbnb and hotels uh, in cities. And I want to make sure that we're clear about what the landscape of this battle looks like. Airbnb's selling point is, number one, that it's cheaper for guests, that it allows you to stay in places and in particular in cities away from the commercial centers where all the hotels tend to be clustered. So it gives you more of a neighborhood feel. And for the hosts, uh, they get to make a little bit more money, and a lot of those hosts happen to be middle-class people. So it's just a little bit – it's a nice little uh, bonus for them um, at a time when middle-class wages have stagnated, right? The hotels would respond with what?
3: Hotels say – They're not paying taxes. They don't have to adhere to Americans with Disabilities Act. They don't have to have fire sprinklers. There's all these expenses that hotels have to – they have to go through the ringer on all these things, and Airbnb is getting a free pass at that. But they really come down on this issue of illegal hotels, which is people snapping up units and using them as dedicated Airbnb units. So nobody lives there. They are just renting them out all the time or most of the time. It is not a a regular person's apartment. So those are the the main points of criticism.
1: Which shrinks the supply of housing in the city, including affordable housing for people uh, that don't have a ton of money.
3: Right. Now, the the affordable housing argument, you know, the number of listings in Airbnb, of Airbnb in New York is around 44,000. And there's 3 million housing units You change the housing supply with one brush of a pencil stroke by changing one zoning law. I mean, witness what's happened on 4th Avenue and Park Slope. Like, tons of condo buildings have gone up in the past few years. So it's not – it has a very negligible, if any, impact on that. But, you know, if someone is not renting out – I mean, there are people who are, you know, kicking out their long-term tenants and using it for a nightly rental on Airbnb instead because it's so much more profitable. And so – you do see this, and there are this this notion of commercial units where somebody has amassed, you know, three, five, twenty units, and is running a mini empire. You know that that does have that. You know, nobody likes that. I mean, Airbnb says it really is trying to get rid of that as well. I mean, it got rid of a lot of those players. It's very hard to get a real story of what's happening because if anyone's doing that now they're kind of cloaking themselves right. as a as a onesie. Right. So, because that's what the consumer wants also, the consumer wants to feel like it's like hosty and it's not commercial. Right, but, but I am that's told, to the whole
2: point of using Airbnb, right, right? Is that I'm like staying in someone's home, I'm not staying in a generic hotel yeah, room. Yeah, that's
3: sort of the sell and yeah. and it's authentic and so I, I do think a lot of that, the, the real problematic commercial users have gone to other sites largely, but you do still have some of that activity. It's really hard to find.
2: Before we move on to the next one, I, I mean one of the things I thought was interesting that you get into is, on that note, um, how Airbnb has reacted to that um, and how they've really – they've sort of taken a page from, like, political campaigns – to the extent of like identifying their hosts as sort of their core voters and the guests as occasional voters and mm-hmm. approaching that. Can you just talk a little bit about how they've reacted in mobilizing sure. support? Sure,
3: so this is a strategy that has evolved over the years, but um, early on when they first got their pushback, I mean, the, the first thing they did was to say, listen, let's get our hosts on our side. The hosts are the people that ran out their space, that they are the people that are making 97 you know, cents on the dollar on Airbnb. It's unlike Uber. You actually keep 97% of the money when you rent out your space on Airbnb. And so they they kind of got them on on board. And over time, this has evolved to really become a very formalized process. They hired Chris Lehane, who um, is a well-known, uh, comes out of the Clinton administration, and a uh, well-known political strategist. And he came on board in 2015 and has really mobilized the the host community around the world and gotten them to kind of, they call it, like you want them to ratchet up the commitment curve, you know. You want to get them to do a series of things: showing up at a meeting, writing an op-ed, calling a congressman or a city council person. Um, there's a whole ser- series of steps that, that they get their hosts to make, and and the hosts are 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 engaged. Now the hosts are the most engaged because they, as I said, are making money. The guests are many more in number, but they might not be as you know, passionately in favor of Airbnb. But they but if you poll them, they like it, and sure, I'll help, you know. So they, they really have, and they, they've kind of adopted this snowflake model of the Obama campaigns, which is sort of community-driven campaigning, where you get, you, you groom leaders in the community themselves, and they get other people on board, and mm-hmm. it kind of becomes this thing, so.
2: And it makes a lot of sense, given that the fact that, a lot of these challenges I mean it's not like they're facing like national laws right they're they're dealing with like municipality by municipality, mm-hmm. like super like in the weeds regulations that like you really do need people on the ground who can understand it
3: you do and 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 politicians listen to the consumer and listen right. to the voter, and it's true it's not a federal or s- statewide you know it is it is local municipality by local municipality, so it is an incredibly complex. Issue that they have on their hands about all this, and they have a whole system to, to work on it, and it's you know it's 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 working. I mean, it's they're they're seeing some results, but just L- last, not in a couple markets. Last
1: question on this one before we go to the next one: They did lose a couple of fairly high-profile legislative battles uh, in New York and in uh, San Francisco. I got the sense from the book that you weren't sure if they would eventually win this battle in those two cities and maybe in other cities, but. The founders themselves were hopeful that uh, public opinion would eventually go their way.
3: Yeah, they are. I mean, they they basically, I mean, Brian Chesky has a quote in the book where he says, I think we're going to resolve this, and I think my hair will still be brown when that happens. <laughs> I was asking him specifically about New York. And, um, you know, it will come to a resolution. They they eventually, I mean, their hope is to, to get this 2010 law that is this, the, the root of all their problems changed at some point. That's probably a heavy lift. But I think there's the user base tends to grow. The politicians here in New York know that people generally like it, uh, but they say we're looking out for the people that live here and they don't like it. And there are huge neighbor issues. I mean, in addition to safety and um, legal issues and other things, especially in New York City, there is a serious neighbor issue. We, We live on top of each other here.
2: <laughs> right, and the flip side to this idea of like, oh, it's so great because I can go stay in Paris in a neighborhood I wouldn't have been otherwise able to stay in is the people in the neighborhood are like, hi, we live here, and actually we don't necessarily appreciate this right. like, constant flow of transients Yeah, and we're, we're
3: actually not on vacation. Like, I have a presentation to give tomorrow morning, and somebody next to me is coming home on their once-a-year vacation with their friends, you know, loopy, like, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of issues that that brings
1: up. I'll just snarkily tack on, though, that – at least when it comes to the affordable housing issue, another solution besides stopping a company from operating in your city is just to simply allow the building of more housing. Yes. Um, okay. Very let's true. go to the, let's go to the next one, and I think this is the one that is most topical and most immediately relevant to the company: um, discrimination and diversity issues, both in terms of the company's own employment, but just as significant in terms of uh, how. Its users actually function, how they interact with each other, uh, who they choose to let stay at their places, and who they reject.
3: Yeah, this is a really significant issue for the company, and it came to the fore last summer when um, there was a study that a Harvard professor did that showed showed proof of discriminatory behavior by Airbnb hosts. And when that came out, there was also a lot of other people came forward and started to say, "I've been." This was this was actually a long simmering problem that the company. Missed, and even though there was a Harvard study before that one that came out that said the same thing, and the company issued a public quote dismissing it, saying this was only one city. This is a, they, they came out with a very terse uh, acknowledgement of that study, but you know, dismissing it. So they they were not attuned to it. And you could say they have said. I would say they're three white guys who founded it. I mean, many people who had you know brought a, a different experience to the table at the very beginning might have said. We're putting people's pictures, making them so big. This is all about people's visibility and their profiles. Let's think about this here. So, this was a problem. And in fact, I mean, because this went so against the company's mission where anybody can belong anywhere, that's what that's the mission. This was the exact opposite of that. And so, if this is happening on Airbnb, its whole raison d'etre was like shattered. And so, Talk about things that keep Brian Chesky up at night. I mean, this was sort of like, the legal stuff does, the safety stuff probably does more than the legal stuff, but this was absolutely, like, you know, killer for them. And so they did this 90-day review, and they came back with a series of tools that were really, you know, and and recommendations and new things they were going to institute that was, it was a lot. I mean, it was a lot. They went, Brian later called these things going uncomfortably big, you know, in a response to something. You have to just overcompensate so uh, – but it did damage the company. I mean, a lot of people really – I mean, this this was huge news. It w- it became everyone's water cooler and Sunday barbecue topic of conversation. And uh, that's, that was a problem. And so they've tried to come out with these recommendations and these policy changes. And they were applauded for them. And um, everyone has to now sign a, a gre- an agreement before using the site that they will not discriminate. And so – But it really goes
2: at, I mean, a a problem facing a lot of these companies, right? This whole issue about, like, we're a platform, we're not a provider, we're not necessarily responsible, or how how responsible should we be? Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's, like, still not entirely clear, right? Like, like... Across all of these problems we've talked about, like fundamentally, how responsible like yeah. does a company like this need to be?
3: It's funny, but they they did take more responsibility for this than than, than oh, they, else? they they <laughs> didn't try to use the platform thing with this. Like, oh, right. it's not us. I mean, they did say it, it is not them; it is their users. But they really did kind of come out and, and take responsibility for that. So, but it is a it is a it is a huge issue.
1: What did you think of the Super Bowl commercial that uh, came out this past weekend, um, in which? Airbnb essentially reinforced its mission to quote-unquote belong, that everybody should have a place of belonging. Um, And then it had a picture where essentially there was a vertical line that would scroll across the screen. And then behind the line, you would see the changing race and ethnicity of the person behind the line as as it scrolled across the screen.
3: Yeah, I think that was a very powerful ad. They got a lot of um, attention for it, and it was sort of an update of an ad that ran right around the time that was expressly designed to deal with this discrimination issue, uh, and to say that anyone can belong on Airbnb. And now they are using this as a message to support, you know, the the refugees across the world, and to take a stand, take a political stand against Donald Trump's immigration ban right it's
2: pretty canny essentially reversing i mean for what was essentially a defense for them is now something they can like be on the offense about right
3: yeah it's true i mean they got some criticism for that that that. (laughs) yeah but i would i would just own that like yes you know we we don't we think that anyone should belong in airbnb and we think that this policy is really terrible and you know i you know i think that those two sides of that coin can completely coexist So
2: you mentioned Uber a little bit earlier in the conversation. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is we definitely see we constantly see Airbnb and Uber like lumped together. Right. Mm -hmm. Like in in all sorts of news reports, um, you know, they're both sort of in this very broadly defined sharing category. They're both unicorns. You know, they're when are they going to IPO? You know, and and it's interesting because I feel like at different moments in recent years sort of. They've each had these crises, these sort of you know, PR crises, and you know problems you know that have been identified with how they operate. Definitely feels right now that Uber is like more of a bad guy than Airbnb. Yeah, I mean, how, what what would you? I mean, you, having done this deep dive into this company, like how how do you see the distinct like a distinction that's maybe not as obvious to the casual observer?
3: Yeah, I mean that that is an obvious distinction, and it's it's true. I mean, in the beginning, Uber sort of had this take no prisoners approach. We're going to go into markets and ask questions later. And they did that, and they got a they had a, got a lot of pushback about that. And then there's a lot of a lot of stuff about the culture there, and about Travis Kalanick's personality. I mean, you know, they they really had a had had quite Travis a bit. Travis
1: Kalanick, the founder, the founder
3: and CEO, yeah, co-founder and CEO. And so they've kind of softened a little bit. I I didn't dig too deep into Uber's culture and t- into that aspect of things, but Airbnb was just as ruthless. I mean, they just have a well, I don't know if they were just as ruthless, but they also went they technically went into markets with no questions asked they right. they just sort of did it from a position of naivete i mean brian says he learned about the the new york law when a host called him up in 2010 and said hey do you know about this thing that's going to be passed and he said what are you talking about so once they did know you know did they 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 kind of operated on that ask for forgiveness rather than asking for permission so they were ruthless in their own way but they, they came at it in a much kind of gentler package and I, I think that's a big difference.
1: I, I have to say that the, the personality that did come across most vividly in the book was uh, Brian Chesky's, the CEO's. He does seem to have an instinctive sense for when it's time to abandon uh, all the consensus advice and the political approach to things and just try to sort of own the problem and try to like fight past it. And I mean, you know, I don't know the dude, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like at least he's willing to deal with it. Whereas in the case of Uber, uh, you too get the sense that they're more geared for confrontation all the time.
3: I know? would say that's accurate. I mean, Brian Chesky, he's a really interesting personality and, and character. And, and his path is so – I mean, again, he's evolved so much as, as a leader. All this was new to him. But he's, he's really into learning, and, and his most important thing, like when these bad things happen, when, you know, there have been deaths on Airbnb, he always, he always thinks that there's the reaction, there's what you do, but then there's what you learn, and you have to be learning all the time. You have to take learnings and apply them to how you do things in the future. And so that's really been one of his kind of mantras this whole time.
1: Lee, what's next for Airbnb?
3: Well, the future of Airbnb has been uh, in the news a lot lately. They had this big announcement last fall where they were going into this brand new product category of experiences. and The most millennial of categories. Yes, the <laughs> most millennial. Yes. Um, So they announced this with great fanfare that they're going into these, they're going to offer a lot of different things beyond just offering a place to stay. They're going to offer these, they call them immersive experiences where when you're traveling to Miami, for example, you can book a a night with like a fire spinner and he'll take you around all the underground fire spinning clubs, like something you would never be able to see or truffle hunting in Italy. I mean, there's there's a million examples of this, and this is a huge focus of theirs. And and so that's a big part. That's just been rolled out. But they also announced a lot of other things. They're gonna get into the services market and they're gonna get into ground transportation, they're gonna do something with flights. I'm basically trying to close the gap between a long time ago, Brian said on stage, like there are three things that you get at a hotel that you don't get in Airbnb: consistency services, and I actually can't remember the third thing, but services <laughs> was one of that. And he said, there's nothing that a hotel does that we can't do, we can't find someone to do in your li- in you know in, in a living room. So there, that's a huge part. I mean, he told me, and I have this in the book, that eventually he thinks that accommodations will be less than half of the revenue of the whole company. So they have big ambitions. So we're just seeing the beginning of that, and we'll just have to see what happens. And they want to be, in 10 years, they want to be the first online travel company with a market cap of $100 billion. So that is the the long-term goal.
2: In that case, is there anybody that's sort of doing this in existing way that they're going up against the way that they were, you know, initially going up against like HomeAway and VRBO? Yeah, I mean,
3: a little bit. This whole expansion puts them less against hotels and more up against online travel agencies, yeah. people like Expedia and Priceline. Uh, who have multiple brands under one roof, and a big part of why Airbnb wants to do this is to have a, a relationship with its consumers that is you know across the board so you know if they want to rent a crib when they 're traveling like Airbnb handles everything I mean you can now do restaurant reservations, you can do meetups with other hosts i mean there 's all kinds of things that you can do and, and we 'll see a lot more there but I think that 's the, the the comparison
1: here 's something I learned in the book a lot of times when people uh use that ubiquitous word, uh, disruption, and they apply it to Airbnb, they're usually talking about the battle with the hotels and how it's made a lot of idle capital, like these places to stay, and it's basically activated them. Now you can use them. But actually there's been some new stuff that's emerged from Airbnb's success, what you call like bolt-on companies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, My favorite example, because I've experienced it myself, is that there's a company that will liaise with like nearby cafes in order to be able to pick up the key to the place there so you don't actually have to wait for somebody to hand you the keys themselves. Um, They just tell you where to get it, and then that cafe has some kind of a deal where they make a little bit of money for holding the keys or something like Mm -hmm. that. But also, now you have landlords starting to design their places Mm -hmm. to be rented out as Airbnb uh, listings, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it seems like this has actually sparked, if not a whole new industry, um, at least some kind of an adjacent industry.
3: It it has, absolutely. I mean, there's the sort of cottage industry of these companies that serve the Airbnb ecosystem, like the Key Cafe is the company. That guy's raised $3 million in funding. I mean, these these are like sort of mini little Airbnbs on, of their own. There's, there's a mini bar service, there's pricing analytics, there's um, renter's insurance, I mean, anything around what you might need, like pillow fluffing and all this <laughs> stuff. And then there is this sort of ripple effect. I mean, Airbnb has a partnership with these huge commercial landlords, residential landlords that have hundreds of thousands of units uh, between them. The, the agreement with them that they want to forge is to make Airbnb okay to allow it in their buildings, so that their millennial renters will will be more likely to rent from that company's you know property because they can rent it knowing that they're going to have an income stream with it. So that's one thing. But then they're also talking about working with builders to design apartments that are expressly built for sharing. So the layout would be if it's a two bedroom, the bedrooms would be on opposite sides of the living room and it would just be easy to share with a stranger. And so, you know, I, that's that's a new a newer initiative and there isn't so much proof that that's actually coming to market anytime soon, but it's 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 what they see.
1: The Gallagher. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me. It's super fun to talk to you guys.
1: The book is The Airbnb Story, How Three Ordinary Guys Disrupted an Industry, Made Billions, and Created Plenty of Controversy. Shannon, always a pleasure. Thanks, Cardiff. All right. Let's close this sucker out. Send us an email at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. For our overseas listeners, that is plus one country code. Rate the show. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really does help people find us. Shannon, you're on Twitter where?
2: At Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L.
1: And Lee, where are you on Twitter?
3: At Lee Gallagher.
1: I'm at Cardiff Garcia. And you can find show notes at ft.com forward slash alphachat. Finally. On Airbnb, normally the guest pays the host. But if Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast, is staying at your place, you should be paying her for gracing your shabby apartment with her excellence. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.